You are here because the outside world rejects you. This is your family. I am your father. I want you all to become full members of the foot. There is a new enemy. Freaks of nature who interfere with our business. You are my eyes and ears. Find them. Together we will punish these... Only a few vague reports of young boys or teenagers at the scenes have been filed. But we've got kids that have grown up accustomed to this type of life. Now get out of here and let me do mine. These JV lowlifes need to be taught a lesson. All fathers care for their sons. Salutations and consolations, dudes, dudettes, and everyone in between and beyond. It's, oh, I lack the words, really, to describe how great it feels to be back here, behind this microphone. Headphones intact. Podcast recording software. Recording. It's so good to be back here in my home. In home, Pennsylvania, kiddos. I know, I know. I promised you all that we would finish out the volume, Cultured Fear, the very first volume of In Lieu Of, and I fully intend to make good on that promise, kiddos. But you see, your old pal Dixby Caravaggio, well, he went on a bit of a journey across the seas to explore strange new lands and fascinating new people. That's really all I can say about where I've been, but 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 you know what? Forget about that, kiddos. Forget about where I've been, because right now, I'm back. And I can promise you that I will not be setting sail again. No, not me, not I, Dixby Caravaggio, for the only ship that I'll be commanding. Be called, in lieu of, the stoutest, hardiest, ruddy red, ruddiest ship of a podcast ever to rile the seven seas. Why seven seas and not six or eight? I don't know. And why the letter C? Even more baffling. Let's uh, move on now and never again return to this type of an opening for an issue. Unless that issue be covering one of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Yarg! Okay, yeah, sorry. (laughs) You know, being on a boat that long, you're kind of dip in and out of that uh, persona, but... Hey, hey, can we cut the... Cut the... Yeah, no, we're not... Thank you. No, we're not doing the pirates. No, that's we're not doing pirates today. That's not. Uh, that's not what we're doing. Can we, it's fine. No, I thought it was great too. I I liked it. All right, a couple more, a couple more seconds. Fine. 
right, all right, all right, all right. Come on, come on. That's enough. We have an issue to do. Let's go. Back here right now with you, kiddos. And we have so much to talk about. I, I, well, hmm. What are we talking about again today? Because I remember last time we were talking about Sonic the Hedgehog and, and animal rights, animal abuse and crimes against... And then there was the teaser at the end that teased something... Hmm. Oh, yeah, that's right. It's that, um, that little-known indie comic from the mid-'80s by... What were their names? Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird? I mean, I guess those are their names. Come to think of it, I can't even recall the name of their book. Limited run, marginally successful, kind of developed a cult following, I think. It'll come to me, just give me a sec. Oh, come now, of course I'm only fooling because, oh god, how I wanted to be a turtle when this movie came out. Today's issue features a rare example of a film adaptation of a kid's cartoon that holds up better than the cartoon it's adapting. I mean, we remember the pizza, the sewer lair, the fight scenes, the totally radical catchphrases. But this is in lieu of, which means be prepared to have one of your childhood favorites dissected for what may be not so pleasant. Those inconvenient fears. Like the fears of youth gang violence and child exploitation that underlines much of the film's plot. Bossa Nova! Chevy Nova? In lieu of a growing window into the scary realities of urban life and the growing concerns over the youth of the nation in the late 80s and early 90s, how did we get the Shredder's delinquents in the 1990 live-action Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie so very close to the end of Volume 1, Issue 5? And have you no one to go to, kiddos?
The show West 57th, a mid to late 80s news program that competed with and was eventually bested by fellow CBS produced show 60 Minutes, ran this special in 1989. Titled Chicago Gangland, Children at War, the special centered on Cabrini Green, a housing project located on Chicago's near north side. As you just heard, the network reportage brought the realities of this urban life, experienced predominantly by people of color, into the evening living rooms of people who perhaps had never directly experienced anything close to the realities of Cabrini Green, let alone had been exposed to such realities via their television screens. You know what I mean. The way I grew up. Your old purveyor of long-stemmed candle holders, Dixby Caravaggio. Growing up among a suburban expanse of starter homes, pocked with chain groceries and independent ice cream shops, where squirrels and crows crowd pine trees rising above cul-de-sacs, where the closest thing to gunfire you'll hear will be bottle rockets on Independence Day. The only time you'll hear a young boy in distress is when he dashes his knee against the driveway's unforgiving graininess, the sedimentary antagonist that will forever thwart his attempt to achieve a wheelie. In my musings, I specifically used the example of a young boy scraping his knee. And it had to be a little boy because, well, did you just hear Bob Martin earlier, the head of the Chicago Intervention Network? about the definition of trophies and what such a label meant to the future perpetuation of gang life? Like the film at the center of today's issue, male children are also at the heart of the gang problem as presented by West 57th's 1989 special. Maybe it's more appropriate to say that boys are the heart of the issue. Let me show you what I mean. Report begins in earnest with the interview of Johnny Shannon, a 10-year-old resident of Cabrini Green. And, as you might imagine, it's a chilling, heartbreaking account. Listening to the kid describe where he lives and what he has seen.
The reporter returns to Johnny Shannon frequently throughout the broadcast, with establishing shots of him walking through a desolate section of Cabrini Green. The spires of the then Sears Tower rising behind him, symbolizing hope, but also, somehow perversely, a bulwark to change. A reminder that progress has a way of keeping itself within view, but just out of reach for a kid like Johnny. By virtue of where he was born, because of nothing within the control of any 10-year-old. The survival of a gang rests on recruitment, so says West 57th. The show takes pains to tie together Chicago's gang problem inexorably with the children living under gang rule, making it the utmost priority to break the cycle, break the transition from future to current male gang member. The gang problem, as it turns out, was a boy problem. And as the show consistently reminds us, in the late 1980s, there were a lot of future gang members living in Cabrini Green. For all of those listening who didn't know what Cabrini Green was before this issue, or for all of you who had heard about it at some point in your life, and this first part of the show jogged your memory, I say to you this. Did you know that Cabrini Green has been around you this whole time? Did you see 1992's Candyman? Well, if you haven't, you should. What about the location that inspired the PJs? Remember Eddie Murphy's Claymation TV show? What about Kanye West's video for Homecoming? That last shot of him in front of the wide building with the AC units? Cabrini Green, Cabrini Green, Cabrini Green. Of just those three examples, I admit I only knew two of them before I started researching. I can't say that, that I ever gave much serious thought to places like Cabrini Green. I was a suburban white kid. What was a housing project? You learned about stuff like that from someone at school. You know, when I think back, I can trace the origins of where I started hearing things about how lazy people on food stamps are, or how illegal immigration is ruining the job market for our parents, or how only poor people live in the projects, or how poor people are bad, dirty, to be avoided and never trusted. It was in suburban white public schools. But these were my peers, my age, just kids. Where were they hearing it from? The Cabrini Green special report ran on one of the major broadcasting networks, which meant its potential reach was potentially wide. Just how wide? Ron Miller noted in a December 1989 piece from the Washington Post that, quote, the major commercial networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC, began to lose their monopoly on the TV audience in the face of competition from an ever-expanding TV universe, end quote. It was true that the proliferation of cable TV in the 70s and 80s had changed the television game forever. Add to that the fact that when CBS first aired West 57th in 1985, the critical reviews and viewer ratings left something to be desired. So CBS's wide reach didn't necessarily translate to programming pay dirt. I say all this to acknowledge that the 1989 Cabrini Green special wasn't the Super Bowl, or a presidential debate, or the payoff episode revealing who shot J.R., 
It was one thread of many. And this is important because while I'm using the content from the West 57th broadcast to make my points in this issue, Steve Croft and company were hardly the only news outlet in town and certainly not the only such outlet to cover what was happening in some of America's most renowned urban locations. There is a recklessness in today's gang wars that make even the prohibition battles of the 1920s pale by comparison. It is worse, of course, in some places than others. Among the worst of all is Los Angeles. A New York neighborhood which has long been a reproach to the nation. But the South Bronx is trying to rise from the ashes. It is a battle to do so. There are 70,000 gang members in Los Angeles County. Out of that, perhaps about 10,000 are hardcore. Hardcore means that they'll kill you as soon as look at you. The hardcore gang member, uh, he's a sociopath. He's an individual that uh, you can't do anything with. Uh, he has no conscience, uh, nothing except uh, to make money out of the, through the sale of narcotics. They're out there dealing dope, so they're fighting over that. They're fighting over territory. They're fighting over virtually anything. Whose graffiti goes on this wall? Whose neighborhood is that? Um, uh, long-time wars that have been going on over things that people can't even remember anymore. Most of them that are doing these things are, are kids that, that uh, do not feel that they are worth anything. They drop out of school. We don't do anything to bring them back into school. Uh, they go on the streets. They see others making a great deal of money, either in drugs or prostitution or a whole variety of criminal activities, and they say, that's the way to go for me. All around is decay and destruction. Unemployment, illiteracy, arson, and despair have stopped a lot of people here. A kid is not going to go to junior high school every day and flip hamburgers at Mickey D's when he can stand on a corner and make anywhere from $100 to $300 a day selling rock. This isn't West Side Story. This isn't a bunch of kids going around with zip guns. It's a bunch of sociopathic killers who have Uzi machine guns and Mac-10 machine guns. The idea that there is total unemployment here, total crime, total drug addiction, is a stereotype shared by many Americans. That was just a snippet of various reporting of the time. Can you hear some patterns emerging? It wasn't so much the West 57th report in isolation, but how it fit into the wider patchwork of contemporaneous news coverage that makes the establishment of the narrative so compelling. The audience digesting these news stories, a primarily adult audience if I might be so bold, were also digesting the narrative, heightened by eyewitness accounts from young boys and single mothers, but truly driven home, literally driven into audiences' homes by the accompanying footage of police cars racing down dark urban streets, of young men far off walking and talking together. Their destination? Well, we really don't like to go into places like that, now do we? Much has been made about what the first U.S.-Iraq war did not only to American television audiences, but also to television itself. How live coverage of military engagement the bombs dropping in real time was a TV first, setting up new expectations for what perspectives television could provide. New, previously thought to be impossible perspectives were lighting up primetime living rooms in night vision green. Can we possibly expand this well-worn trope to other types of programming, especially those centering on real-life events? If we can, then we should, because it's only when we do this that we can begin to appreciate what audiences especially white audiences, must have thought about such news offerings in 1989. What did white audiences make of seeing, in many cases for the first time, 
the lives of those relegated to urban ganglands. I don't mean to paint what ignorance may have existed among white audience members as all-encompassing, or even as malevolent. Films about gangs like The Warriors, The Wanderers, Class of 1984, and Bad Boys were common in American cinema. I mean, come on, The Godfather is about a family of gangsters, and how much more American cinema-y can you get? But news television has a way about it, doesn't it? In its presentation as factual information culled unbiasedly from raw, lived data. There's a humanity to the West 57th report that gets through to viewers in a way that film is hard-pressed to deliver. Precisely because West 57th isn't cinematic or panoramic, there are no visual effects, save the animation in the title card and credits. There are scripts for the newscasters to read, but scripts written only after being on location and after the interviews and establishing shots. Scripts written and read by men and women who were there and who wouldn't dare fabricate such things because such things, back then at least, were incompatible with how the world was supposed to work. These fears, born out of negligence or ignorance, whether warranted or not, show up, you guessed it, in a movie where the main characters spend their duration of screen time wearing green, full-bodied, latexed rubber turtle suits. I'll come back to that idea of the film's main characters in the next half. Let's just say for now that Dixby's got a, well, a somewhat controversial opinion on who this movie is really about. The suspense is killing me! Stay put, kiddos. This just hit me. I'm, I'm re-watching the movie to write this issue, and have you ever noticed 1990s Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles does a Terminator 2 Judgment Day opening a few years before Terminator 2 Judgment Day? Think about how Turtles begins. We see New York City of today. Well, of then. New York in all its gritty regality. The ruler of American cities. Wait a minute. Listen to the voiceover. It's the movie's strong female lead explaining where we are and how we got here, a la Sarah Connor. The shots of congested, foot-trafficked streets in Ninja Turtles brings to mind a similar scene in the Terminator sequel. Remember how that movie opens? Where a gasoline-addled freeway twists slowly with rows and rows of fuel-inefficient gas guzzlers choking the atmosphere, forecasting a doom that would come in the form of self-aware killing machines, but a doom that was nonetheless prophesied and inevitable. And that's where I'm more than comfortable stopping this forced comparison between the films. Okay, if you could forgive me uh, maybe one uh, a teeny tiny uh, example further. 
in both movies, uh, we, we see into the future in Terminator 2, um, and we see flying crafts and laser-toting Terminators terrorizing everyone. And in the Ninja Turtles movie, well, we don't see anything like that. But it doesn't mean that the citizenry of New York City, uh, it doesn't mean that they're not under siege. Because the victims in this city, in this time period, in the 90s, they're being attacked by an altogether different kind of malignity. As famed NYC news reporter April O'Neil puts it, quote, Much more than just a series of small, isolated incidents, it's now apparent that an organized criminal element is at work, end quote. April's sardonicism never tires in this movie, and actor Judith Hogue plays this part of the character with a wonderful looseness, done to perfection when she hilariously riles up police chief Stern uh, later on, and April knows how to push each and every one of his buttons, and, and, and by the end of their conversation, he just exclaims, Are you trying to tell me how to do my job? It's, it's so good. Anyway, anyway. I bring up April's personality and the way that she interacts with people or with mutated Ninja Turtles because the audience gets its first taste of how funny she can be when she follows up the line about an organized criminal element at work with... And at the moment, business is good. So good, in fact, that there appear to be no eyewitnesses to any of these crimes. With complaints ranging from purse snatching to breaking and entering... Police switchboards have been swamped with the angry voices of more and more citizens who have fallen prey to the recent surge of crime that continues to plague the city. Instead of getting better, things have actually gotten worse. Even more alarming is the baffling and often bizarre nature of these crimes. Merchandise of every size and description, from skateboards to stereo systems, has been disappearing from store shelves and storage areas at an alarming rate. Even the victims themselves rarely catch a glimpse of the thieves. Many don't even know they've been victimized until it's too late. In fact, police have yet to come up with a single eyewitness. Only a few vague reports of young boys or teenagers at the scenes have been filed. But whoever is behind these crimes, one thing is certain. These are much more than just a series of random, isolated incidents. Crimes without criminals, an invisible gang at work, who are we going to call? Unfortunately, the police are the only ones available to combat what some are already dubbing the silent crime wave. But perhaps the most disturbing silence is that coming from City Hall? April O'Neil, Chapter Both three, this movie and this issue that we're talking about right now, um, they both begin with news stories. And that's not by accident. In the first few scenes of the film leading up to the opening credit sequence, April is established as both an authority, uh, she's a news anchor for what we can assume is a major network affiliate, and as a proxy for the audience. I mean, Right after she finishes that opening newscast, uh, she's attacked by a group of young men, coincidentally uh, fitting the description of those she had just finished profiling in her nightly report. 
Even someone as authoritative and as witty as April O'Neil, they're not safe. I mean, I mean, she is subject to the same assault and the same injury that this version of New York at nighttime would lead us to believe could and actually does beguile innocent bystanders on the regular. Good thing the turtles saved the day, am I right? They destroy the streetlights so their rescue will go unseen by the perpetrators, but also by April. As we learn later when the guys return to their secret sewer lair and report their victory to their father, uh, their, their sensei, the mutated rat Splinter, it is critical that they stay out of sight and off the radar, especially of someone as influential as O'Neill. As Splinter puts it, Even those who would be our allies would not understand. Our domain is the shadow. Stray from it reluctantly. For when you do, you must strike hard and fade away without a trace. Your ninja skills are reaching their peak. Only one truly important lesson remains, but must wait. You are still young, but one day I will be gone. Use my teachings wisely. It turns out that it was Raphael who took out the streetlight, losing one of his weapons, a sigh, as thanks for his efforts. April recovers the sigh in her bag, prompting Raph to let loose the first of a few dams in this kid's movie based on that kid's cartoon. When Raphael is chasing after Casey Jones and he's so frustrated because Casey Jones is getting away and, you know, it just cuts to a wide shot of New York City and we just hear um, Raphael scream. Damn! Um, that was one of the funniest things I had ever encountered um, when I first saw this. I was very young. But it was very, very funny to hear a Ninja Turtle not just say damn, he says it a few times, but to scream so the entire city of New York hears a Ninja Turtle screaming, damn. But I digress. Raph, as any expert of or newcomer to TMNT lore will tell you, is the most intense of the four teens. The brashest, if you will. The one you'd want to have your back. Or your, your shell, I guess, in a fight. But he's also the turtle who expresses his very complicated feelings towards his brothers, usually with anger, and towards his father, usually with frustrated contempt. All of this masking his, his true emotions, of course. The depth of Raph's inner rage is equal to his emotional depth and his capacity to be vulnerable. And we see this in the film. After returning home, uh, following uh, the thing I was talking about before when he screamed, damn, um, when he's coming home from that, following his losing effort against the hockey player turned vigilante Casey Jones, Raphael's confronted by Splinter waiting in the lair. Splinter's there and he has a candle with him, a single candle. Um, it's a very um, haunting scene at the beginning. It, it, it begins very tense. It's a very tense affair. But but by the time that the scene ends, it becomes one of the film's most most fiercely tender. Raphael, come sit by me. 
Couldn't this wait till morning? You will listen now. My master Yoshi's first rule was possess the right thinking. Only then can one receive the gifts of strength, knowledge, and peace. I have tried to channel your anger, Raphael, but more remains. Anger clouds the mind. Turned inward, it is an unconquerable enemy. You are unique among your brothers, for you choose to face this enemy alone. But as you face it, do not forget them. And do not forget me. I am here, my son. I don't care if you agree or not, but uh, I cannot think of a, of a better, more perfect representation of Splinter and Raphael's relationship than this one. At least not in any of the other movies or TV episodes. And this scene is an important one, um, least of all because of its placement in the film's story. Note that before Splinter is kidnapped by Shredder's Foot Clan, we only see the Ninja Master interact one-on-one -on -one with Raphael, not with Leo or Donnie or Mikey. This, coupled with the fact that it's Raph's decision to bring April back to the lair after she's attacked by the Foot, and thus leads the Foot straight to the lair, that makes Raph's realization that Splinter has been kidnapped later in the movie more impactful, not to mention his fervent, heartbreaking reaction, blisteringly earned. It's only a matter of time, as we heard Splinter tell his sons, that they'll be forced to live in the world without him. Remember that scene where Donnie and Michelangelo are waiting for the pizza guy? Donatello asks his brother if he's ever given any thought to what their lives would be like without Splinter. Michelangelo thinks for a moment, but then he shrewdly evades the question by saying the pizza guy's late, so he'll be deducting three bucks from payment. Splinter's warning to the boys gets to the heart of what I think this movie is about. The dynamic to which the movie will return over and over again. And that dynamic is this. The bonds, whether strong or fraying, whether biological or mutated, between fathers and sons. Fathers and sons, Dixby! Yes, and that's not even the weirdest part. The weirdest part is that this movie, 1990s Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, isn't truly about said turtles. Who is this movie about then? As strange as it might be for me to say and for you to hear, uh, random old seafaring man, the first ever live action film adaptation of the mega popular, mega lucrative TMNT property principally centers on a troubled teenager named Danny Pennington. Danny Pennington, son of Charles Pennington, April's boss at the news station. Danny has that look about him, like he's trying a bit too hard to be cool. Like he's afraid we're all going to see right past the baggy jeans and the Sid Vicious t-shirt and find the good kid, you know, that he's, he's buried uh, deep inside. Fun fact, Danny is the first main character we see in the film. 
When April voiceovers the beginning, where we witness an elaborate game of pickpocket telephone, you know, someone's wallet getting lifted, then passed from hand to hand until it reaches, I don't know, bad guy HQ. Who did one of those pairs of hands belong to? You got it. Danny Pennington. Oh, and I did mention Bad Guy HQ. Um, the scene cuts to the interior of Bad Guy HQ, and we actually see Danny unpackaging uh, stolen electronics. He actually pockets a Walkman that his father, Charles, will reference later when he and Danny stop by April's apartment. Hey, Danny, how's school going? Fine. Oh, wonderful. So wonderful, in fact, I have to drive him there every morning now just to make sure he goes. See? That's what he does when he wants to ignore me. Sticks his head in those things. I wonder where the hell he got those things anyway. Charles, give the kid a break. Danny's relationship with his father is strained. That is established early. Danny's penchant for purloining is further enshrined when, while his father and April are talking, uh, Danny takes a 20 from April's pocketbook. So, you know, he's a kid, he's he's doing all the wrong things, he's he's stealing from people, you know, he's part of this mysterious gang that uh, April is reporting on, and, you know, he eventually gets arrested. Um, we see this kind of in the in the background of a shot, and then, and then they do the close-up of him, you know, being led into the police station in handcuffs. But uh, Danny's eventually released, um, and then right after that, he runs away. He just bolts out of his uh, father's car while they're sitting in traffic talking. I don't get it, Danny. I make more than enough money to provide for both of us, and you're stealing. Why? I don't know. You don't know? What the heck were you doing with the car stereo anyway? Or uh, don't you know that either? Sorry. Sorry? Not as sorry as you're going to be after school. Danny? Damn it! Danny, come back here! That's kind of Danny's first arc in the movie. Or the his arc during the first half of the movie, maybe. I mean, but these are all the actions we see Danny take. Choices that he makes. Just from a narrative perspective, Danny is insanely important to the story here. His actions driving a lot of the plot. Who catches a glimpse of Michelangelo under April's table and takes this information to Shredder, leading directly to the ambush at April's antique store, to Raph's life-threatening injuries, and to the turtle's retreat? Danny Pennington. And who, later on, just as his turn back to the light is nearly complete, inadvertently alerts Shredder that the turtles have returned from their exile? Yep, yep, DP. Even the plot point that I didn't catch on my first few hundred viewings. I, I saw this movie at least 3,000 times, roughly, between the ages of 5 and 8, so forgive me. But even this plot point that I didn't catch the first time, where Danny's arrest is used by Chief Stern as leverage over Charles, who in turn tries to rein in April's relentless coverage of the Foot Clan story, and her constant badgering of Stern's inefficacies in exchange for Danny's release. I mean, this all leads to Charles eventually firing April after she again casts Stern in a negative light while on air. But Danny providing catalysts for several of the movie's story beats notwithstanding, it's how the film deploys him when he's not directly or inadvertently driving action. In his interactions with his father, Charles, uh, with Shredder, and for the sake of this transition, with Splinter. How can a face so young wear so many burdens? So, you can talk. Yes, and I can also listen. Some say that the path from inner turmoil begins with a friendly ear. My ear is open if you care to use it. No, I don't think so. What is your name? 
Danny. And have you no one to go to, Danny? No parent? My dad could care less about me. I doubt that is true. Why? All fathers care for their sons. This scene occurs after the foot kidnap splinter. He's chained to a wall in Shredder's compound when Danny happens upon him. Over the course of their conversations, Splinter will become like a father to Danny. Splinter is the third, yes, third father figure who takes it upon himself to influence Danny in the movie. Becoming like a father to Danny by this point in the film is played out. Remember, Danny has already run away from his biological father, Charles, and has taken up with his first adopted father, Shredder. Hence the title of this issue, This is your family, I am your father. Shredder considers himself father to the current and future members of the Foot Clan, both the veteran clad-in-black assassins who attack the Turtles, and the teenaged girls and boys who will grow up, under Shredder's tutelage of course, into the Foot Clan's next army. But Danny singles himself out from the crowd, raising his hand and exposing the connection between O'Neill and the Turtles. Because of Danny's demonstrated loyalty, Shredder pays special attention to Danny. It's actually not clear whether Shredder learns the boy's name. Uh, when discussing plans with his number one, Master Tatsu, uh, Shredder inquires as to the whereabouts of, quote, the boy who led us to the turtles, end quote. I guess we can't really hold this against Shredder, though, can we? He's not presented as the warmest, fuzziest potential father figure in the world. Imagine getting a fatherly hug from that guy. Hope the sweater dad got you is stab proof. Whatever his shortcomings in the Father of the Year contest, Shredder does provide his kids with a purpose, a community to feel a part of, uh, and a trade. An illegal trade, but a trade nonetheless. Do you remember that medley of news coverage I played earlier? I think the person was talking about L.A. when he said that a kid isn't going to stay in school and work at McDonald's when he or she can make significantly more, uh, in, the, in the example provided, um, selling drugs. Whatever he's doing, Shredder has a powerful formula here. I think we have to admit that. He has figured out a way to combine the illicit with duty, uh, honor, and discipline. Listen to how Shredder begins his speech to his kids. We heard the end of this speech at the beginning of the issue, but before he addresses his wider audience with all that, this is your family business, uh, Shredder initiates a new full member into the Foot Clan. Money cannot buy the honor which you have earned tonight. You make us all proud. Only effort, discipline, loyalty earn the right to wear the dragon doji. You are here because the outside world rejects you. Money cannot buy honor. I think that's the general message here, right? But all criminal empires on the rise need money, which is why I guess Shredder can make proclamations about effort and discipline um, and sort of intimate towards the spiritual rejection of earthly wealth while commanding an army of disaffected teens to loot New York City clean. The movie establishes Shredder's organization as a gang in the 1980s and early 90s sense of the word, using many of the same gang tropes enumerated in the West 57th report, albeit tempered for a PG-rated motion picture. That's, you know, probably why they didn't include things like the, uh, you know, Shredder's kids selling drugs, for instance. That would have been, uh, I, I don't know, would that have made it PG-13 uh, in 1990? No idea. 
But the point I'm making here is is the movie says, hey, Shredder is in charge of a gang. And Shredder sees himself um, as a father. You know, a father to all of his, well, trophies. We find that via Splinter's second flashback exposition that uh, he and Shredder have a shared history. Of course they do, right? In Japan, a pre-mutated Splinter was kept as the pet of a ninja master named Hamato Yoshi, whose rival, Uroko Saki, kills Yoshi over his mutual love for the same woman, Tang Shin. Splinter attacks Saki during the murder. I remember it well. As my master returned home to find his beloved Shin lying on the floor. And then he saw her killer. Saki wasted no words. And during the struggle, my cage was broken. I leapt to Saki's face, biting and clawing. But he threw me to the floor and took one swipe with his katana, slicing my ear. Then he was gone, and I was alone. While this is a somewhat muted interpretation of the foe's enmity when compared to, say, their interactions in the cartoon, the Splinter-Shredder rivalry is one that transcends time and probability. By the end of the film, the two characters find themselves facing off to finish a fight they began years ago. It's completely improbable. Shredder is revealed, of course, as none other than Orokosaki, removing his iconic mask to reveal the scars that Splinter gave him uh, all those years ago in Japan. Splinter and Shredder's struggle for Danny's future becomes a proxy war, both sides using their respective influences over Danny to further their competing ideologies. Whether a ceremonial overture from Shredder before his band of disaffected youth, or an intimate encounter between a troubled teenager on the precipice and a captured-in-chains Splinter, both sensationalized paternal figures vie for Danny's soul. The movie rather inelegantly shows us what the internal conflict is doing to Danny. While he sleeps, he's pulled back and forth in his dreams, the disembodied voices of Shredder and Splinter speaking to him, coaxing him with dueling visions of what a family should be. You are here because the outside world rejects you. And you have no one to go to, Danny? This is your family. All fathers care for their sons. Which side ends up winning? I guess you could say it's a tie between Splinter, who Danny helps um, liberate from the compound, and Charles, who he reunites with after the actions concluded. Danny? Danny? God, where have you been? I've had the whole city looking for you. Are, are you all right? Are you okay, Danny? It's okay, Dad. I'm okay. Really. I'm okay. Dad, it's just Dan now, okay? Dan? 
What's more important here is not who wins, but who loses. In this case, Shredder, whose empire crumbles following his defeat and subsequent mashing in a garbage truck. The veil that Shredder and his forces so adeptly cast over the eyes of New York's wayward youth is lifted, uh, somehow. I'll quote Splinter here, who, after being rescued by Danny and Casey Jones, gives the still-loyal-to-Shredder contingent uh, a stern talking to. Quote, The Shredder uses you. He poisons your minds to obtain that which he desires. He cares nothing for you or the people you hurt. End quote. Splinter reminds me of one of those law enforcement officers we heard earlier in that mishmash clip talking about gang violence. I think it's safe to assume that Splinter takes an anti-gang position. And why shouldn't he? After all, the year before Splinter gave that speech, uh, West 57th released its Cabrini Green special. And other networks did the same throughout the 80s and early 90s. Chicago, LA, and yes, your city, Master Splinter. I wonder if this movie had been greenlit earlier than it was. If writing could have begun sooner, what kind of first-ever live-action TMNT movie would we have then? I can't realistically say that it would bear much resemblance to the one we got. Sure, the characters would have been the same, maybe. Hell, maybe Danny Pennington's character wouldn't have made it to production. But it's honestly hard for me to imagine a world other than the one we had in 1990 where this movie could have been made exactly this way. It's really that question of why did something happen a certain way um, that's at the center of why I bother making this podcast. I can go on and on about movies, TV shows, and video games independently, you know, just enumerating all the ways they make me happy or frustrated or frustratedly happy. I don't need uh, anything else. I don't need to pull in anything else than the, than the, the piece of pop culture itself. But it's when I step back and ask, why did they do that? that I feel compelled to learn more about the world, or at least about the time periods to which my nostalgia is fixated. And so here we are again, this time at the end of a volume, and a volume about fear, at the close of an issue about Ninja Turtles and 90s youth gangs that I must ask, why did this movie happen in this way? Why did the movie feel that one of the first things to do, one of the one of the first orders of business in this Ninja Turtles movie is to establish a teenaged boy in trouble, one who's already headed down the wrong path? It goes back to that father-son thing, which becomes the movie's vernacular, the most essential, most well-understood concept in universe, the most prized of relationships that, if healthy, can save the day, and if poor, can put the city in peril. It extends out. That's how important it is. So vital to a society that an observer can judge the society's welfare based on how genuinely genuine the society's fathers love their sons and its sons their fathers. This movie hits cinemas amid the environment I shared with all of you in the first half. An environment where audiences were being exposed to things they maybe knew something about or had heard something about but had never actually seen, let alone experienced. The 1990 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie ultimately suffers from this observer perspective. The movie always feels just a step or two out of touch with itself during the Shredder gang scenes. Not the Foot Clan and the Turtles fighting. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the gang scenes with the, the teenagers. It's like the story the filmmakers want to tell is on the periphery of the story they're actually telling. 
I remember something my best friend said once when we were reminiscing about this movie. He said he remembered his dad's reaction to the scene where the audience gets its first good look into Shredder's operation. The scene that precedes uh, Shredder's big speech. Anything. You got any cigarettes? Regular or mental? His dad pointed out how inauthentic the scene played when a young Sam Rockwell offers the other teens um, a choice of cigarettes. Oh, as an aside, um, yes, that Sam Rockwell. You need to IMDB this immediately. It's like the first time that you realized Big's Dark Lighter was in 1989's Batman. Anyway, back to the scene being inauthentic. If they were all really so free, all left completely to their own devices, and being some of the city's worst and worst-off kids, would the most scandalous thing they do be smoke cigarettes? I guess it goes back to what I said about being a PG movie, but I have to agree that this whole scene comes off as forced, a bit too desperate to be edgy, to try to replicate that uneasy feeling in audiences, especially the 90s adults out there, the one that they get when they experience things via their screens to which they have no prior experience. And the movie does a pretty shoddy job of replicating this feeling, falling into the trap of reducing troubled youth to its two words. Any and all nuance is papered over with an edifice of equality. How is Danny's context, uh, son of a network news producer who, by his father's own admission, makes more than enough money to support them both, how does his context differ from that of real-life Johnny Shannon's? Does it matter? I think it does. The movie tells us that all children, regardless of race or upbringing, are susceptible to following the wrong path, which is plausible enough, I guess, but it does beg the question, what sent Danny down this path? How did he come to find himself stealing for the Foot Clan? Danny's lack of a backstory invites viewers to start filling in the blanks for themselves. Where is Danny's mother? Was he born and raised in the city? How were his grades in school? Did he have a significant other or a crush? Did he have any friends before he made new ones in the Foot Clan? Oh, I can see myself spiraling down a rabbit hole where I argue Danny Pennington's history or explicit lack thereof is deliberate. I've got you now, 90s Turtles movie. Danny grows up to be Heath Ledger's Joker. Some men just want to watch the world bone. Indeed. In all seriousness, though, uh, what if we learned halfway through the movie that Danny's mother divorced Charles? Or that she died? Or that she was an abuser and Charles has sole custody. Would that help us empathize a little more with this white kid from the city whose dad seems to have everything together career-wise? I don't mean to diminish Danny's inner pain, but I do question how the character Danny deals with his pain. His disaffection is never explained. There's what he says to Splinter about um, his father not caring about him, but, but other than that, you know, we don't have, we don't have anything. It's never explained, which leads me back to the proposition that this movie is trying to tell me something, but that something is getting muddled in translation. You want to make a statement about youth gangs, youth violence, youth exploitation and abuse? 
No, seriously, do you Ninja Turtles movie? Because that's fine. That's that's more than fine. But please go about it differently. Maybe get some consultants in, some folks with real world experience to give these scenes something to say. And that doesn't come off as kind of lazy or cliched or uninformed. How effective do we think the movie's lessons about waywardness and redemption are? Danny finds his way back to the good side, thanks to Splinter. Mostly. I think. And and the Turtles, they helped too, obviously, by uh, uh, being totally radical. To be honest, it's, it's really hard to pinpoint when Danny turns um, from being on the bad side back to the good side. But that's Danny. That's one kid um, in isolation. What about the other teens in Shredder's youth gang? Well, I'm glad you asked. All right. I want some answers. Now, what in God's name happened out here tonight? Somebody better talk to me. Go check out the East Warehouse over Ledman Island. Get your answers there. All right, let's go. So that's the last word from or on these teens. Stern and his squad are going to check out the island and do what exactly? Recover the stolen goods? Arrest some more Foot Clan? What happens to these kids? They're just on the streets still. They're just... The movie offers no redemption and little resolution for them. The Foot's financial backbone. I thought this was the Shredder's family. While it's still one of my favorite movies, I think... Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles ultimately did its 90s audience no favors by reinforcing the notion that the antidote to the violence associated with gang culture is for good people to do something. Will that make bad people stop what they're doing? We heard earlier that the city of Chicago was in a battle with Cabrini Green, the city within the city, over these youngsters for these children. Combine Charles's hard work and passion with Splinter's insightfulness and curiosity and blammo! Father of the freaking year! That's how you solve a problem like Cabrini Green. But what if you're a single woman? Remember the demographic who were disproportionately the heads of more than 60% of households? What did they do? What did Johnny Shannon's mother do? Researching for this issue, um, one of the first things I watched was the West 57th Cabrini Green video. Um, and as it happens, when you're writing 15 to 20 pages for something, you you sometimes lose what a person in a video clip said, or you remember it in a different way than it was actually said. So I always find myself needing quick access to this material. And, you know, I googled a YouTube link. I'm there. But once the video began to play, a comment caught my eye. It was a newer comment, but that really didn't mean anything to me, um, as I usually don't bother with comment sections while writing. 
It was from someone calling themselves Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, and it reads, quote, Johnny Shannon was released from federal prison in January of 2019, one month after his 40th B-Day. He is only 40 and has the second half of his life to live. I want him to make it, end quote. I couldn't move when I read that. I had already watched the video several times and had gotten used to Johnny's voice, the, the smallness to it, the, the hesitance in it, the almost whispered rasp, like he didn't want anyone hearing what he was saying to the reporter. Like he was traumatized. I tried to find out more about what happened to Johnny after the 1989 West 57th broadcast and came upon some articles referring to a Johnny Shannon of Chicago that listed his age and, well, based on the article's publication, the math added up. The only hope for kids like Johnny Shannon, escape. What are you going to do if the gangbangers come up to you and say, we want you to join? I'll tell them no. What if they insist? I'll still tell them no, I won't get joined. Would you like to live somewhere else? Yes. Where would you like to live? In Beverly Hills. In Beverly Hills. Why in Beverly Hills? Because not like no violence. It, it was little 10-year-old Johnny Shannon I was reading about living in prison. The 10-year-old who was going to say no. I'm with the YouTube commenter, of course. Um, I want Johnny to make it too. Johnny was failed by a system, by a city, by Steve Croft and West 57th, and in some remote butterfly effect kind of way, by movies with facile depictions of what his life was thought to be like, using it ultimately as a plot device. I hope Splinter was right when he said, all fathers care for their sons. No, not because I think it's the first, final, and only answer to the problem. Institutionalized racism, income disparity, and neglect must all be addressed and reconciled. But I still hope that Splinter was right about fathers loving their sons. Because it couldn't hurt if it was true. Who knows? Maybe it would have made a difference. For Johnny, at least. Wow, we kiddos. I've never capped off a volume before, so I'm not sure what I should be feeling right now. I mean, nostalgia, of, of course, but that's a given on this show. Uh, pride, I would say. I, I'm also feeling relieved that this volume got the ending I planned and promised you. What did we cover this round? Batman, The X-Files, Ghostbusters 2, Sonic the Hedgehog, and finally... Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I sincerely uh, love all of these properties. I, I hope that much has been clear, if nothing else, over the course of this volume. But I also uh, don't particularly like thinking about them in that way, um, thinking about them as properties. These things transcend the marketing, the franchising, the critical reviews, and audience responses. 
for me, this stuff is what I run on. And maybe that's why I'm also feeling somewhat melancholic now that we're closing out. But fear not, kiddos. Like I've said before, there's going to be even more fun to be had. Next volume, we'll look at media we haven't touched yet. I've got I've got several issues planned. Now I just have to, you know, pen them and record them and edit them and publish them, etc. So while you may not hear from me for a while again, trust that it's not like my most recent hiatus. The break we're taking from releasing issues is deliberate this time. I like to think that we get a little better with each issue, so it'll be really cool uh, to see where we are at the end of volume two, uh, whenever that will be. But I think maybe the other thing that's kind of warming me up um, and, and, and dispelling the melancholy is that... Batman, The X-Files, um, Ghostbusters 2, Sonic the Hedgehog, TMNT, uh, these things aren't over. It's not like I've been thinking about these movies for my entire uh, waking life, which, of, of course, I have. Sorry, these these movies, uh, these these television episodes, these video games. But it's not like I said, hey, you know what? The the, the one and only thing that, that hasn't been said yet about Tim Burton's first Batman movie is the connection to the cosmetics industry. So that's going to be what I say, and that's it. Um, that is not the case. I want to come back to this stuff, kiddos. I want to come back to 1989's Batman, to uh, a different episode of The X-Files. I, I, there are nine seasons. Um, and two, No, sorry, there are 11 seasons now. That, oh, my bad. Uh, 11 seasons of that show and two movies. I mean, there's there's so much there. And um, and uh, Ghostbusters, too. There's there's more in that movie. There's 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 tons we could talk about in the in the first Ghostbusters and and Ghostbusters Afterlife, which is coming out in 2020. Who knows? And Sonic the Hedgehog. I mean, maybe not. Maybe I won't return necessarily to Sonic the Hedgehog again, but but video games of that era in general. Uh, cool spot. Anyone? And of course, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I mean, we could do things with the with the television show. Hell, we could even do things from the comics. Um, I'm actually not sure how that would work because uh, this is an audio podcast. So I guess I could just rifle through some some papers uh, while I while I narrate what's happening on the panel. I don't know. We'll uh, we'll think about that. But anyway, kiddos, I want to say thank you uh, once again for sticking with us and uh, coming back and listening to this final issue for Volume 1, Cultured Fear. Um, I'm just really uh, uh, grateful and, and excited about doing this show again. And remember to follow us on Instagram at in lieu of underscore podcast. And remember to stay subscribed um, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Um, actually, wherever you get uh, your, your podcasts from, kiddos. Now, I know it wouldn't be the end of an issue if we didn't tease something. We usually tease the next issue, but since I don't want to necessarily tease what the what the very next issue will be, um, it could be a, a standalone, um, potentially special edition issue, or it, it, it could be the start. We may just like launch right into volume two, um, but I don't want to spoil what that is yet. Um, and, you know, like I said, we're still putting it together, so... <sighs> So, okay, uh, I said, um, I think I may have said in, in issue one or two of this volume that um, I really, really, really love teasers um, in all their forms. <laughs> I gotta tell you, you know what my favorite kind of teaser is? The montage kind. Hit it! Who are you? Aaron. Who are you? No one. Who are you? No one. Who are you? I'm Duffy.
The vampire slayer and you are? And you really think we can do this? We're going to do it. Oh, nobody knows how many there were, really, do they, Pete? I mean, history is a sketchbook. I, you didn't know that The Three Musketeers is a fiction, right? Written by Alexander Dumas. A lot of people are saying that about the Bible these days. Well, that it was written by Alexander Dumas. <laughs> Don't be daft, Steve. It was written by Jesus. Roger sold dope to kids. The world is a better place without him. He can't be like this. It is this way, man. I'm sorry I exposed you to it, but it is. It's ugly, but it's necessary. Regret is unprofessional. <laughs> Regret is unprofessional. They kept me for five months in a room with no air. They tortured me. And I protected your secrets. I protected you. But they made me suffer. And suffer. Until I realized it was you. Son of a bitch! What's the matter? The CIA got you pushing too many pencils? Huh? <laughs> okay, okay! I've got a sweet tooth for licorice drops and jelly rolls. Hey, sugar daddy, Hansel needs some sugar in his bowl. R-E-C-Y-C-L-E, recycle C-O-N-S-E-R-V-E, conserve Don't you P-O-L-L-U-T-E Pollute the river, sky or sea Or else you're gonna get what you deserve And who do all colors? Do they float? They float When you're down here with me You float! I know I'd go from rags to riches. This is great So tell me, tell me, where have you been? I haven't seen you. I haven't even, you haven't even called or anything. Where have you been? No, I've been working nights. And um, well, tonight we were out late. We took a ride on the out to the country, and we hit one of those deers. That's where the blood came from. I tell you.
captain's log supplemental. We are unable to maintain the gap between the Enterprise and the Borg ship. You can't outrun them. You can't destroy them. If you damage them, the essence of what they are remains. They regenerate and keep coming. Eventually, you will weaken. Your reserves will be gone. They are relentless. Where's your stubbornness now, Picard? Your arrogance? Do you still profess to be prepared for what awaits you? sounds like a lot of work. I need to go get started. It's been amazing to be here, kiddos. Back again with you, and back again with you soon. I can assure you that when I re-emerge from my dilapidated ranch somewhere outside of home Pennsylvania, well, y'all will be the first to know. In lieu of a more keratinous host, I'm Dixby Caravaggio. Cowabunga! Cowabunga!